And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Please be advised this episode contains themes that some listeners may find triggering and language that some may find offensive. My name is Maya Howells. I am one of 20,000 women and men who have been spiked in Britain today. But that number is just the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg led me to start this podcast. In this episode, I want to explore the what comes next. I want to learn about the consequences for perpetrators. I'd love to see a landmark case involving spiking and, and something that can send out you know, a really strong public message. This is wrong. There will be strong action taken against perpetrators. And I want to highlight the long-term consequences for spiking victims. They don't see you sat on your bedroom floor like crying. They don't see you like literally feeling sick because you've got to leave the house. So join me and get under the skin of one of the most insidious and common crimes in the UK today. This is Pricks, episode five, Sharp Consequences. You can see how many responses I get coming through regularly. So like 18, 18, 23, someone in their 40s. I started I've Been Spiked as an outlet for my own experiences after being spiked in 2020, but it's turned into so much more than that. Lots lots of people in their 20s, 17. There's so many. After its launch, the campaign's inbox was flooded with responses from people all over the country, and they all had one thing in common. They had all been spiked. And while no one experience was exactly the same, so many of their stories shared common themes. I'd read the same words and phrases time and time again. And I wanted to show my producer, Sophie, who's here with me now, what an important resource these messages are. At the moment, I think we're the only platform that has this kind of space and you think this is a bit of a kind of a way of a bit of catharsis for people you know I'm gonna I'm gonna brain dump my story here and so they're not reporting it to the police they're not reporting it to the bars or wherever it might be but this is their kind of outlet 100% I feel like I mean this was one of the first things I did when I started the campaign and I thought that I mean I found that my experience sharing my story was really cathartic and I wanted people to have the same are you frustrated that you know, you're still getting so much contact with such frequency. Just the other day I had an email from a mum who had said her daughter's been spiked. Do I have any advice on what to do to help? And it's frustrating that even through all of this and even though sometimes it seems like change is happening, clearly it's not because people don't even know where to turn to. And at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm a 23-year-old girl who runs an Instagram page and a campaign. I do it by myself. I'm not a charity. I'm not uh, an authority. One thing which keeps appearing in my inbox time and time again is the word shame. 
And that's certainly something that I felt after I'd been spiked. But now, two years later, and on reading these messages and absorbing all these people's experiences, it's not shame that I feel, but outrage. How can spiking be seemingly such a common occurrence, yet so few victims end up reporting it? How can these pricks get away with so much when they create such lasting damage? I wanted to speak with someone with another perspective on this situation. In theory, the people on our side, those charged with getting justice for those who have been wronged, the law. At this point, I'd reached out to the National Police Chiefs Council numerous times, sending various emails over the last three months, with no response. They're the part of the police responsible for making change, setting policy, reacting to issues and making sure things improve. If anyone should be engaged in this issue, it's them. I'll keep trying, but in the meantime, I arranged a call with someone I thought could shed light on why the justice system isn't front and centre of the conversation. I'm Charlotte Proudman. I'm a barrister and I specialise in violence against women and girls. And I'm also a fellow commoner at Queen's College in Cambridge, where I research and teach on violence against women and girls in the law. Charlotte handles all sorts of cases. She comes face to face with some of the darkest of women's experience. Coercive control, sexual assault and rape. I do think there is an enormous epidemic when it comes to violence against women and girls. I really do. I think it's an epidemic of mass proportion. This isn't a baseless conjecture. Charlotte told me some stats which reveal the relationship between issues like spiking and the justice system. 1.6 million women suffered with domestic abuse, huge number in one year. And then on top of that, we have 85,000 women that are raped or attempted uh, to have been raped. And that these are significant numbers. Then you look at the actual prosecutions and convictions for these types of crimes, and they're absolutely woeful. They're appalling. You know, less than 2,000 convictions for rape. So there's a real mismatch between the levels of violence against women and girls and then the numbers of cases which result in prosecutions and convictions. And we see that really starkly with spiking, which has been put more on the political agenda. Quite rightly so, there's been a lot of media attention. But what does this actually mean in practice? Well, in practice, we should all be able to walk into a police station and be taken seriously. But as I know firsthand, that's not the case. I think that some of the main obstacles in terms of spiking are quite similar, um, not just for spiking, but for, for more general forms of violence against women and girls when it comes to reporting to the police. So there's a fear that you won't be believed or that you're going to be asked a range of other questions, which might be tantamount to, say, victim blaming. Where did you leave your drink? Um, who were you with that night? How much had you had to drink? Uh, what you're wearing, who you're dancing with, who you're speaking with, etc. So the onus is put on you rather than on the potential perpetrator. To really cement this point, I asked Charlotte to tell me the impact of that kind of questioning for women and men who've plucked up the courage to come forward, to be asked questions about what they were wearing. I mean, for fuck's sake. I've worked with women who have been spiked and have told me about how harmful that has been the fact that they've tried to report this to the police and it hasn't been taken seriously uh, and that they've been turned away. 
there's a real mistrust, I think, between women and the police. And certainly women that I work with have described that to me. This absolutely compounds the experiences I've heard time and time again. But giving the police the benefit of the doubt for a second, let's just walk through the possibilities of what might happen after a woman reports her spiking incident. Say her case is taken seriously and the police try to investigate it. Then what? Some of those that do come before the police will involve, for example, um, a, a woman being spiked in a club. Uh, and we use the term spiking, but it kind of really minimises the serious level of abuse that's taking place, where often this type of abuse is so that a man can rape or sexually assault a woman or leave them in a very vulnerable situation, which means they're open to that type of abuse from other individuals, often strangers. And so if they're spiked, it can be a needle prick, say, for example, in the arm, um, which then can be very difficult to detect later on down the line. And then it can become a so-called he said, she said type case. And that's even if it's possible to locate um, an alleged or, or the actual perpetrator. And this is the next hurdle. As with so many crimes of this nature, the victim is often completely incapacitated at the time the incident takes place. So details which could help progress a criminal case are understandably sketchy, hard to verify or corroborate. CCTV, witnesses, even first-person testimony, they can all be unreliable or irretrievable. Maybe that's a big reason why these pricks do it, because the likelihood of them being caught is woefully low. I asked Charlotte what she thought would make a difference in getting cases to court. It's a question, I think, of making it clear that this is against the law and that there is a strong deterrent against perpetrators committing this kind of abuse. And for that to happen, you need to show that the law is working in the first place. And violence against women and girls needs to be prioritised to the same level, for example, as terrorism, which at the moment it's not. Charlotte told me that, at the moment, the cases involving spiking, which make it to the court, are almost unanimously where victims have gone on to be assaulted or raped. It's almost as if the worst possible outcome has to have happened for your case to make it to court. It's not enough to have been spiked, incapacitated, terrified. You have to experience the unthinkable to achieve any kind of justice. 37 perpetrators were found guilty of date rape in spiking incidents between 2017 and 2020. That's 5% of all reported spiking incidents. These cases are so infrequent, so rare, that in her long and illustrious career at her family law practice, which often overlaps with criminal law, Charlotte had never come across one. I personally haven't seen any cases that have actually gone through to court. I talked to Charlotte a little bit longer about how much further we have to go and whether change was even possible. If, as the saying goes, the past is both the history book and the fortune teller, the outlook seems pretty bleak. Something Charlotte feels particularly angry about. That's one of the reasons why I was so dismayed, disappointed and disillusioned by the police's response to spiking. When you, if you recall a few months ago, that, that was headline news. And the police's response was, well, this is how women should keep themselves safe. The onus was totally put on us 
you know, is watch our drinks, watch where we put it, don't drink too much, make sure that, you know, you're never left alone and so on. So why is why is it always down to the victim to stop them from being victimized? If someone wants to harm you or someone wants to spite you, they're going to do it regardless of whether you're watching your drink, which shows a complete misunderstanding and a lack of knowledge and experience into how spiking even works, let alone violence against women and girls more broadly. And that response for me just said it all. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. After speaking to Charlotte, I wrote another email to the MPCC and I thought about the issues Charlotte had raised. I mean, why would anyone take spiking seriously if, at least in appearance, the police don't seem to? And there must have been something in the air because the next day I got an email back from DCC Jason Harwin at Lincolnshire Police who agreed to talk to me. DCC Harwin is the national lead on drug offences and he told me that since September, spiking has been the hot topic on his desk. So much so that he was called to give evidence at the Home Affairs Committee in January. When we started to see the emerging issue uh, in September and because of the volume of, of uh, incidents that was being reported to us, we certainly grow between September, October and towards the Christmas period, there was clearly a need to understand what's happening here. Unfortunately, spiking is not new. We've, it's been, it's been an offence been committed for, a, for many years. And the reality is the volume that was taking place, and it wasn't just in one part of the UK, it was throughout the UK, there was clearly something happening. So far, so familiar. Another agency, just like the nighttime industries, just like myself, saying they didn't really know what was going on or causing the spike in spiking. But... For the police, digging into detail was difficult because, as Jason explained, spiking, in the eyes of the law, isn't a criminal offence. So there's no such offence as spiking. Hang on. Let's just pause and let that fact sink in. Spiking has been around for decades. Spiking is someone being incapacitated against their will, having an unknown substance put into their body without consent. And yet, it's not been deemed significant enough on its own to make a criminal offence. This is fucking criminal in itself. Jason tried to clarify. There's, there's a number of criminal offences that actually, if you spiked, we could relate to. So whether that be um, administering an, a, a noxious substance to cause annoyance, alarm, all the way through to with potentially endangering life. But clearly, as you know very well, traditionally drink spiking is a a, a initial act with a view to committing a second offence, whether that be serious sexual offence, theft. So traditionally, we are very good at picking up the secondary offence. We are. We, we, so again, the serious offence is rape, robbery. We do pick up. And again, that's investigated by local forces. So spiking normally would only be investigated by police as a byproduct of something else, i.e. when police were looking at a secondary offence, the robbery, assault or rape which followed. If a spiking didn't lead to one of those things, they wouldn't routinely investigate spiking on its own. 
And because the act of spiking isn't officially a crime, and because the official reports to police are so low, there are no official numbers. It feels laughable. Okay, so what about spiking by injection? Was that the straw that broke the camel's back and made the issue too pointed to ignore? We're starting to see reports coming in um, in a number of areas which continue to expand as, as the reports were brought together of people believe they're being injected. Again, how they're being injected was not clear, but clearly there was marks on the individuals to, to indicate there was some form of needle mark on those individuals. And Jason revealed the official stats as of the time speaking to me, February 2022. What we've seen since September till the 24th of January, we've obviously seen 1,382 crimes. So in terms of needle spiking, clearly we are seeing a year-on-year increase. And we all know it by now that the stats will be, in reality, much higher. That's where we obviously triggered the Operation Leicester, which is the law enforcement response to the issues that we're dealing with today. So Operation Leicester is a national policing operation led by DCC Harwin. They began a detailed investigation finding out if this was part of an international trend, exploring if the crimes were being committed by organised groups or lone individuals. First things first, it seems like spiking by injection is largely unique to the UK, and it doesn't seem to lead to a secondary offence. I mean... Being pricked with a needle didn't seem to be leading to other crimes like robbery, sexual assault or rape. The secondary offences from needle spiking, like we do see for drink spiking, we've had 14 believed secondary offences linked to the 1,382 needle spiking offences. You usually see a lot more with drink spiking, if I'm very honest, but we're not seeing that, so that in itself is very different. So, boiling it down, in most instances, it seems like being spiked by a needle is for sport that pricking someone with a needle is the primary aim, rather than anything which might unfold afterwards. And, predictably, none of these cases of being spiked by a needle have resulted in prosecution. I asked DCC Harwin why that was. Were the police really interested in catching the people responsible? So there has been arrests. They're going through the process now, part of toxicology results and everything else coming back to it. So I'm confident as it possibly can be that we will see convictions through the court process in the in the in, in the coming months. It will take time, and I know that's that can be frustrating for victims, but it will take time. What we've got to do now is trying to get ahead of it. I'm no police officer, but I put it to DCC Harwin that getting ahead of it would be made easier if victims who came forward were treated seriously in the first place. We recognise firstly in this type of offence is significantly underreported. We we'll, we'll speak to and you've probably spoken to individuals that have previously been subjected to spiking, but for a number of reasons uh, they've not reported it to the police. They've either because they've not got confidence, they don't think it's been taken seriously, all the way through to they're still uncertain themselves have they been spiked or not because they may have been consuming alcohol and everything else. They're only going to report it if they get a response that shows empathy, that they're going to get supported, that they're going to get the necessary wraparound care recognising again it can affect people different ways and then importantly recognising that we'll do everything we can to identify those responsible. But with that all-important caveat within the means that we've got within the law. And all together now. There's no such offence as spiking. Putting that to one side, the way I interpret Jason's rationale, and I agree with him to some extent, is that this is a chicken and egg situation. Police obviously need to do better when people report they've been spiked to increase trust. But, in turn, 
Victims need to recognise the importance of reporting. It means CCTV can be gathered quicker, hospital testing can be conducted sooner, and more lines of inquiry can be pursued in the immediate aftermath. It sounds like a utopian vision, but it makes sense that, together, this might lead to an ultimate goal, which is getting these pricks off the streets. In fairness to DCC Harwin, he does acknowledge the need, the urgent need, in fact, for change. Ultimately, we want anybody to be able to go about their normal life without the fear of, I'm going to be spiked. I've got family. I've got children. The last thing I want is mine, to be going out into the communities in the nighttime economy thinking, oh, I might get spiked tonight. I don't want that. That's not the environment I'd want to be in. We also recognise there's a lot more we need to do. And, and the fundamental bit we've got to do with all this, and any spiking, whether it be drink or needle spiking, is recognising we've got to change behaviours. So, at the Home Affairs Committee, where DCC Harwin was called to give evidence, he pushed for a tangible change by making spiking a standalone offence. Why would we not have a separate offence? An offence that actually comes with its own punishment, that realizes if you won't commit a second offence, and actually it should be an aggravated offence, and therefore you should get a greater punishment. And, in a sharp turnaround from previous messages from the police, DCC Harwin added this. We want to address it not by focusing just about what, what a victim can do to keep themselves safe. We want to focus more on the offender. If you are committing this offence, we are looking out for you. You can go to prison, and the reality is this is not for fun. This has a massive impact on a victim. You've got to stop it. If you don't stop it and we catch you, we will make sure the law deals with you in an appropriate way. That's some big old ambition. But it's not just Jason who's urging victims to speak up. Lisa Townsend echoes those thoughts. If you'll remember, we heard from her in the last episode. She's the police and crimes commissioner for Surrey. And two decades ago, she was spiked. She has a unique perspective from both sides of this coin. I would always, always, always say report it to the police, but it is definitely a wider cultural and societal issue. We only start to address these things by talking about them. And it's through podcasts like yours and the work that you're doing where we start to really address these issues. Lisa explained why each and every report collectively helps. We can't say if you report something, we'll be able to fully investigate it and there will always be a positive outcome from it because that's not always going to be possible. And, you know, it is difficult because where there isn't any evidence, of course, um, you know, there, there can't be a decision. The CPS won't take a decision to charge because if you don't have any evidence that it happened and you don't have a, sort of a suspect, then you can't, it's very, very difficult to take that forward. And that was certainly one of the reasons I didn't go to the police um, was because I thought, well, there's no evidence. We know this much, but Lisa raised a bit of a however, which is worth thinking about. However, what I would say, though, is it's about building that picture. So it's about saying, I was in this bar and this happened to me. That allows police to build a picture. And I think it can be quite frustrating for people, and not just with spiking, but with all kinds of crimes. Um, you know, I'm very conscious that people report things and they feel that nothing ever happens to the information. And that's absolutely not true because it, it does all get fed in. It does go to build a wider picture because everything gets recorded. And so we make sure that... Um, if we're getting multiple reports, for example, it might be a student town somewhere and we're seeing increased reports about a particular area. You know, those things are all collated and looked at and that helps us build a picture. And then what we can do is we can go out and speak to bars and clubs and others in the, that area and make sure that they are looking out for it. So 
preventative work is so important for us as well. It really, really is. We don't want to be investigating crimes. We want to be preventing crimes. Um, and so this is a really, really important part for us of being able to prevent further crimes happening. Lisa thinks that even if you're sceptical that your spiking experience will ever reach the court, it's worth speaking to the police to contribute to the bigger picture, to create data that's too weighty to ignore and hopefully protect other victims in the future. We've heard from lawyers and from the police. We've learned about all the current barriers to achieving justice and that spiking perpetrators aren't even likely to get arrested, let alone charged. But let's retrain our focus and take a second to recognise the aftermath for spiking victims. An aftermath which isn't dependent on the police report or a courtroom. An aftermath which doesn't always make the headlines. The couple of journalists that maybe that had asked me to, to do an interview after the incident happened, and then when I said, oh, well, I didn't have any side effects or nothing bad happened as a result of it and they were like oh okay we don't want to we don't want to do the story then that's rebecca derbyshire who told us her story in episode three a victim whose story apparently wasn't dramatic enough to be worth telling in the press one that would need sensationalizing in order to make the papers wasn't it sensational enough that a woman going about her business on a night out had been jabbed with a needle Let's not forget, Rebecca is a victim who is still waiting for blood test results to see if she'd been infected by a needle which punctured her skin. Her story should be a powerful call to arms. We should collectively be outraged on her behalf. But instead, what seems to happen is that her experience is diluted and invalidated. The bar staff didn't want to take her seriously. The police didn't progress her case. And, as the journalist told her, Nothing really happened to her. So really, she was lucky. Yes, you are lucky compared to other people, but you're not lucky that that happened to you. Like, it still massively affected me mentally, and they're the things that people don't don't really see or don't really think about following something like this, is they don't see you sat on your bedroom floor, like, crying. They don't see you, like, literally feeling sick because you've got to leave the house. Like, people don't see that side of things. So definitely not lucky, no. (laughs) As psychologist Emma Kenny explains, the effects of being spiked are not linear. They are not uniform and they can last indefinitely. In my world, it's always been highly traumatic experience that's brought them there. I think that first of all, ultimately, it transforms your understanding of what security feels like and what the world around you feels like. And all of a sudden the world gets turned upside down and you're like, nothing feels safe. Everybody is a threat. And then from that experience, they also have to deal with the post-traumatic stress. And, you know, many victims will be perfectly all right for 12 months, 18 months even. They'll just go about their business because they're in a reactionary state. I just need to keep going. I just need to get on with it. It just will be something I deal with. I'll just put it in the past. And then bang, 12 months, 18 months, they're having hot sweats, cold sweats, flashbacks, nightmares. They don't want to go out. They're feeling suffocated and panicky. They're getting high anxiety. They're waking up with dread in their stomach. And then they're like, well, it can't be the attack. That happened 12 to 18 months ago. What's wrong? What's broken in me? And my job is, of course, to get them to understand that, well, no, your brain was so overwhelmed 
it was so terrified by this experience it just coped it just got on with it to a point where you put enough distance and you got on with your life and now we're ready to process it that's disarming and terrifying and ultimately can be quite catastrophic for the client and that is the potential reality for victims of spiking we have to wait and see whether spiking will be made an offense in its own right or what changes might roll out across the nighttime industry the police and the justice system and we'll have to wait even longer to see if changes filter through into society or better still those compelled to spike another person but waiting for clarity doesn't stop us from having hopes of what the future will look like. We can all dream of a world where spiking is a distant memory, where nobody has to go through what I and countless others have experienced. I asked Lisa, a victim 20 years ago, and now a police and crime commissioner, what her vision was. I mean, I don't want us to have to still be talking about it is ultimately where we all want to get to, right? You know, I think about things that maybe were considered acceptable 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago that we know are no longer acceptable, you know, and this is everything from, you know, non-crime related things. Um, You know, I remember a time when not wearing a seatbelt was considered acceptable. Um, You know, our parents all remember a time when, and our grandparents remember a time when smoking was considered perfectly acceptable. When, you know, using certain terms, whether they were racist or sexist, were actually considered quite acceptable. Now, we can all think of those things, and we all know that now they're unacceptable. Um, And we all know that we would now question friends or relatives um, or colleagues if they were to do those things or say those things. And I think that that's where I want us to get to with spiking, with misogyny, with sexism, where it's just no longer acceptable, where the kind of people who say those things, talk about things, those things, do those things, consider those things to be funny or consider those things to be remotely acceptable are considered by the vast majority and basically the rest of society as absolutely beyond the pale and not acceptable. And those people are Um, considered to be what they are, which is vile misogynists. In the meantime, there is help out there if you know where to look. Individuals who find themselves in a moment where their whole life has changed and shifted, they have access to go and speak to an individual who can support them. And it doesn't have to be a qualified psychologist, therapist. It can be peer-to-peer. You know, there are lots of options. I run a mental health um, workshop regularly and I'm a patron for a charity and our job is to get peers who've been there who felt it who know it to sit down with people who've been through it and to share experiences because wow that's helpful like it's so helpful to just have somebody sit in a room and be like mate that happened to me and it's awful and this is how I coped and if you do want to take personal safeguarding measures there's drinks covers that you can buy online and even a nail varnish which when you dip it in your drink changes color if your drink is contaminated And for anyone listening who might be affected by this subject and wanting to seek out support services, I've added links and resources to I've Been Spike's Instagram page. Anything that says you're not alone, you are valued, it's not your fault, but now it's happened, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it together? That's really helpful. This podcast has been quite a journey. We've explored the responsibility of bars up and down the country. We've questioned police culpability we've discussed the evolution of predators, and we've challenged a persistent misogynistic narrative. And I've learned a lot. But I want to end emphatically. 
on something which took me a long time to see clearly, which was my own part in my spiking story. Like Sharon Gafka, who, after she was spiked, questioned her own responsibility for the attack. Was it my fault? Did I say something to someone that led them on? Did I wear something that was inappropriate? Alongside people around her, who questioned her part in it too. I think my dad had a phone call from a family member that said it was, what was I doing wrong that meant that I got spiked so many times? And that's coming from someone who's directly related to me. It doesn't take a genius to work out why so many women internalise their experiences and blame themselves. Why would women come forward or, or any victim come forward if this is the experience they're getting? So, for Sharon, for Ted, for me, for Rebecca, for Eki, for my sister Sally, for anyone who has been spiked and might be spiked in the future, for anyone listening to this podcast... It is in no way, you know, the victim's fault. It's not your fault. But I know I can't blame myself. It's not your fault. We need to stop teaching young women that they should always blame themselves first instead of the person that's doing that to you because they are solely and 100% the ones to blame. Perhaps, alongside all the things I've learned in this series, the most important lesson I can take from it is exactly that. It wasn't my fault I was spiked. But by talking, sharing stories and building this campaign, I hope positive change is on the horizon. Thank you to everyone who's bravely told their story. And thank you for listening. Pricks is a podcast production by What's the Story Sounds. The series is produced and presented by me, Maya Howells, in association with I've Been Spiked. Sound design by Daryl Brown, and our executive producer is Sophie Ellis. <laughs>